the more they abandon the Lord. Um, and so that keeps going on through this part of chapter 11. Verse 4, I led them with cords of a man with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their, from their jaws. And I, went, I bent down and fed them. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria will be their king. Judgment coming. Um, because they have refused to return to me. Now verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I make you like Zeboim? Now those two names probably live in your mind, so they don't need any explanation. But for the few who are like uh, Admah and Zeboim with two of the cities destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. How can I make you treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar. And his sons will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. But then, verse 12, Ephraim surrounds me with lies. He's far more compassionate than we have ever dreamed that he would be. Amos, I started also working on Amos this week. And Amos, um, nine chapters, it's two books to the right, so turn to Amos. Nine chapters, first eight chapters are basically judgment. Um... And then when you get to chapter 9, so verse 9, Amos 9, 9. For behold, I am commanding, and I will shake the house of Israel among all nations, as grain is shaken in a sieve, but not a kernel will fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say the calamity will not overtake or confront us. This is to the northern kingdom, Amos is. But then verse 11, quoted, by the way, in Acts chapter 15. In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David. And Mind you, this is to the northern kingdom, the people who have rejected the house of David. In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and will wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and so on. So God is far more compassionate than we've ever dreamed that he is so going back to Isaiah 7 God comes in judgment to Israel but the judgment for Israel is ultimately the precursor to deliverance Um, Isaiah is the only one of the prophetic books that ends with judgment all others end with hope of deliverance But that judgment with which Isaiah ends is only observed by the people of God in Isaiah at the the end of chapter 66. So this is the kind of God we're serving. And this is the kind of God who sends Isaiah to his people to to bring the message that will harden them so that they will go into captivity. But that's chapters, uh, chapter seven, chapters eight, nine, uh, present, present partial deliverance foreshadowing future deliverance through the Messiah 
you know this is in Isaiah 9, uh, unto us, how can you have missed it in December? Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders, and of the um, increase of his government peace there will be no end. His name shall be called Marvel, a marvel of a counselor. We've been doing marvelous things this morning, but a marvel of a counselor. He's a counselor who makes plans that anyone who hears them just sits back, his mouth gaping open at sheer astonishment at the greatness of the plan of God. Wonderful counselor, El Gibor, mighty God, a God who is a, who is a, a warrior. Aviad in Hebrew. Uh, we usually translate it eternal father, and that's, that's an appropriate translation. There's another one that's equally appropriate. Father of eternity? What kind of a person is father of eternity? Prince of peace, Sar Shalom. So, so it's, there is hope through the Messiah. There is hope through the one who is coming. But how will Judah respond? Well, chapters 9, 8 through 10, 4, the northern kingdom's going into captivity. They're going into exile. And every time, as far as I, as I, as far as I remember, I have not looked at this to see if this is exactly true, but it, every time I remember God giving a prophecy of the destruction of the northern kingdom, he warns the southern kingdom along with it. Uh, remembering that Isaiah is not a prophet to the northern kingdom, He's to the southern kingdom. So why would this prophecy be written? In part because by the time people are actually reading the book of Isaiah, not hearing the messages of Isaiah, but by the time they're finally reading the book of Isaiah, the northern kingdom has fallen. So if that prophecy has been proven true, then what about the prophecies of judgment to come in the book of Isaiah? What does this mean for the people of Judah? Well, obviously, you and I know they didn't. Why? Because the message Isaiah is given to preach is a message that will harden them and send them into captivity. Why? When God deals with sin, he deals with it by turning us over to more sin, enabling us to do more of the sin that's already in our hearts to do. This is Romans 1, 18 to 32. Uh, Therefore God handed them over. Remember this? He's not taking nice people and making them wicked. He's taking people who are civilized. <laughs> and taking the civilization away. Giving them more opportunity to do the sin that's already in their heart to do. Classic example is Pharaoh in Egypt. Um, did God force Pharaoh to refuse to turn Israel loose? No. Pharaoh didn't want to. He thought he was a god. And if you're a god who rules a slave people, and they have a god, then you're a god over their god. Yes? Does that make sense? So who is the Lord that I should obey him? Pharaoh asks. And the point is that he is, God is not making Pharaoh sin. He's giving them the opportunity to express all that's in his heart through ten plagues, every one of which should have brought repentance. And even in his counselors, Pharaoh found people who counseled that he relent and give the people over, make them free. They didn't do it. 
So um, chapters, uh, chapter 9, 8 to 10, 4, exile for proud Samaria is the precursor for exile for proud Judah. Ezekiel will say, all the nations were around were astonished at the sinfulness of the northern kingdom. But when they saw the sinfulness of Judah, it was worse. The northern kingdom abandoned the Lord and, and went, went to open idolatry. They only had a few prophets. They, I, I, was, I was intrigued. I had not thought in these terms exactly. Why, Jim, hadn't you done this? I don't know. Sue me. But five of the 12 minor prophets, uh, five of the, what, 16 writing prophets are, are, uh, pri- are functioning prior to the, uh, the Babylonian captivity. Of those five, three are prophets to the northern kingdom, Hosea, Jonah, and uh, Amos. Um, and, and that means, folks, that of the 16 prophets... 13 of them were to the southern kingdom. Yes? Are you with me? Mm -hmm. So why should the southern kingdom reject the message? Is it that they did not hear? Paul asks in Romans 10. No. As a matter of fact, he quotes one of the prophets who says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and and recalcitrant people. Um, Judah is more sinful not because their sins were worse in form than her northern sister nation. They're, they're more sinful because they sinned against more light. With greater light comes greater responsibility. Um, folks, just, just a moment of application here. Read Romans 1, 18 to 32. And keep America out of your mind, if you can. Um, the cycle of degradation there—it's we're under judgment, and we're no one has had the free preaching of the gospel longer or more fully than than the United States has had, and here we are. We've sinned against light. And this is Judah. So 10, 9, 8 to 10, 4, and then 10, 5 to 12, 6, the false empire and the true kingdom. We're going to contrast the false empire of Assyria that Ahaz wants to trust with the true kingdom of God. And so um, chapters 11 and 12 especially will be celebrating that true kingdom of God. The, the root of Jesse, who's also the shoot from Jesse, is going to be the king. That must have been quite a puzzle <laughs> in Isaiah's day. Who is a root that, of, of a man who's also the shoot from the man? What is this? What does this even mean? You and I understand. They didn't. Um, one of the great commentaries on the book of Isaiah says, uh, it really is a fine commentary. It's written by uh, Alec J. Motier, M-O-T-Y-E-R. I'll, his name will be on the screen periodically. Um, Motier says, God keeps giving Isaiah messages about a coming deliverer, but he only gives them a little bit of information. And Isaiah 
it appears in the context, Isaiah starts thinking, well, who is this? And so he, he thinks he's got the idea, and then God gives him some more, and that rules that person out. And we'll see. I'll, I'll try to make this case in the next couple of weeks. Here in chapter 7, you have the promise of Emmanuel. Yes? Yes? You look at 7.14. Um, so in 7.14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, my text says a virgin. The Hebrew text says the virgin shall conceive and bear a, and be with, a, bear a son, and she will call his name Immanuel. God, who is with us or God is with us? Is it providential or personal presence? Look at chapter 8 for a moment. Then the Lord said, well, in fact, let's pick it up at verse uh, 3. So I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Does that sound familiar? Then the Lord said to me, name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz. What I wanted to name my son, but my wife is a, is a rebellious woman, and she wouldn't allow me to name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Uh, means hasten to the plunder, hurry to the spoil. Yeah. Uh, so, so name him this. But in light of this, are the references to Emmanuel in the rest of chapter eight? Well, who is Emmanuel? Isaiah maybe thinks it's this boy born to to the prophetess. Maybe. When that doesn't work out, some have argued that Isaiah talks in terms. Maybe he, Hezekiah is the is Emmanuel. But chapter 39 is going to disabuse him of that idea. And there are other places in the latter part of the book where Israel is the servant. But then the servant is also tasked with restoring Israel to the Lord. And there keep, there keep coming these hypotheses that, being, that keep getting disproven. And more revelation helps us to understand there's more to this prophecy than we understood at the first what we've been saying right along through our studies over months and months is, is important at this point. What God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future. But he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. That's important here. I think within the immediate context in Isaiah 7.14, the Emmanuel prophecy is a reference to the birth of Isaiah's son with the prophetess. Many people have t two names in the Old Testament. Uh, who's Moses' uh, father-in-law? What's his name? Also, Rule. What is Solomon's name? Well, I just answered it. What's Solomon's name? Well, it's Jedediah. Yes? Are you with me here? Yes? No? All right. Um, by the way, Jedediah is from the same root as the name David is. Beloved one. Um, so you begin to you begin to think, you know, this this kid, my hair shall all hash baz, could could be significant. There's something going on, and we'll have to unpack that as we go. So this is the four part strategy we have in developing the ideas in chapter seven to twelve. Let's turn now to uh, the geography, just briefly the geography in the green up there on the uh, uh, on the kind of the upper middle of the map, you see the name Assyria. This is northern Iraq today, where the Kurds live now. Um, 
and they have extended their their um, their empire all the way to the borders of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, or they're trying to. I'm sorry, I got I got ahead of the um, horse. I got the uh, uh, cart ahead of the horse here. They're trying to, and there is a coalition from the Arameans. Do you see the word Arameans that kind of arcs away from the Dead Sea, uh, the sea of Galilee there? Uh, and then um, uh, the northern kingdom, they're in a, with, with Damascus, they're in a coalition trying to force Judah into a coalition against Assyria. Ahaz, though, is, is politically pro-Assyrian. He doesn't want to join the coalition. He figures the Assyrians are going to win anyway, so you might as well throw in your, your bucks with the, the guy who's going to win. And Assyria does win. He finally, the Assyrians finally incorporate all that all the way down into Egypt, a, a most unusual thing in history at this point. Egypt had never been conquered by, another, by a foreign power until the Assyrians came along. So this is, this is a powerful people. They are powerful uh, because of their ruthlessness. Uh, the, the, approach, the mere approach of an Assyrian army would be enough to get a city to capitulate abjectly. Because I've seen uh, uh, reliefs of, uh, from Assyrian palaces. If they captured a rebellious town, they'd take the elders of the city out, kill them in front of the city gate, decapitate them, pile the heads outside the city gate, and then impale the bodies on the wall and just let them rot. Yeah, uh, if you've been to the Tower Gate, in, uh, is it the Tower Gate in London, uh, where they um, put the heads of, of treason, of, of tra uh, tra uh, traitors? Yeah. Um, same thing happened in, in London. They're trying to, to uh, cow their subject peoples into submission, and, that's, and they did. They weren't a large enough tribe to be able to hold their, their empire together by force of arms, so they did it by terror. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? But... Uh, uh, this is this is the political situation and the international geopolitical situation that we're facing as we get into chapter seven and eight, where we're going to be focusing in a lot of ways on the names. So look at chapter seven, the early verses. Now it came about in the days of King Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, and Retzin, the king of Aram, and Pekach, the son of Remaliah king of uh, Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they could not, con uh, could not uh, conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, the Arameans have camped uh, in Ephraim. Ephraim is the major tribe in the northern kingdom. <coughs> his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Now, if you were looking at the world simply politically, your heart would be shaking too. The Assyrians are, are bad folk. You're not facing them. You're facing the Syrians and the Arameans and the people of the northern kingdom. They're all banded together trying to force you into the alliance. So verse 3, the Lord said to Isaiah, Go now to meet Ahaz, you and your son. Now please, I'm going to teach you just a tiny, tiny bit of Hebrew. The name is Shar. Say Shar. Shar. Thank you. Yashuv. Yashuv. 
Sha'ar Yashuv. Okay. I've heard it the other way. I don't, I don't want to hear it. So if, if you say Sha'ar Yashuv to me, please say it that way. And it, it will hardly ever come up in con, a conversation, but just remember, it's Sha'ar Yashuv with me. You can say the other any place you want. But Sha'ar Yashuv. Why should he take his son? Why should Isaiah take his son, Sha'ar Yashuv, Verse 3 continues, at the, go to the end of the conduit of the upper, upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field. Fuller's Field? What's that? This is the laundry <laughs> for town. Yeah, okay. The washerman's field. Yeah. And say to him, take care, be calm, have no fear. Do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on, on account of the fierce anger of Ritzin of, and Aram and the son of Remaliah. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you, saying, let's go up against Judah and terrorize it, make for ourselves a breach in its walls, and set up the son of Tabaal as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass, for the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Ritzin. Well, that's all nice. I'm glad to know that. But one of the things you need to know is that every name, virtually every name in this, all the major names in this passage, have a meaning that fit the context. What does the name Isaiah mean? Does it mean? English must be my second language too, brother. Uh, what does Isaiah mean? Do you know? Let me, let me say it in Hebrew. Yeshat Yahu. Does that tell you anything? No. All right. What's, what's the name of Jesus in Aramaic? Yeshua. Yeshat. The Lord saves. It's the same name. Hosea, Isaiah. Um, there are a whole bunch of them who have the same name. The Lord saves. What does Sha'ar Yashuv mean? It means a remnant will return. And when we get to verse 8, the head, the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Ritzin. Nobody in history ever had the name Ritzin, because nobody would name their kid that. Ritzin means crushed. Here's my son, Crushed. My hope for my future, my, my retirement is here and crushed. My boy crushed. Now his name was Ratzon or Ratsunu, uh, the one who is favored by the gods. But Ritzin means crushed. Why, what, what's the point of saying the head of Damascus is crushed? You have nothing to fear. Put it in the context. Look there at verse 6 again. Um, I'm sorry, 7. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor it shall, come, shall it come to pass, for the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is crushed. And look at what follows. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered that it is, so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is not even named son of Remaliah. Ah. Uh, The names are significant. What is the message of the book of Isaiah? The message of the book of Isaiah is that the Lord saves. There's going to be judgment. 
Why? Because we've already seen the name. It's in chapter 8. Look over there in chapter 8 again. Verse um, 3. We've already seen the name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Do you remember what we said it meant? Went by it pretty quickly. Maher means hurry, and Shalal means to plunder. Hash means hasten, and Baz means loot. So hurry to the plunder, hasten to the loot. Are you with me here? Judgment's coming. So Maher Shalal Hash Baz is part of the message here. You, you can trust the Lord. Why? Because the Lord saves. Um, but judgment is coming. Maher Shalal Hash Baz. But Sha'ar Yashuv, a remnant will return? Yes? Are you with me here so far? Because who do you face? Well, you, you face King Crushed of, of Damascus and that nameless guy up in Samaria. Are you with me here? But there's one other name that hasn't come up. So let's read a little bit more. Verse 9, again, Isaiah 7, 9. The head of, of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you will not believe, it will surely not last. And that's, this, this, is, a, this is a pun in Hebrew. Uh, I think the NIV says something like, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand firm at all. That's it. Yeah. That's it. There's a pun in Hebrew. The same word is used in two different senses. Uh, if you don't stand firm in your faith, you will not stand firm at all. King crushed will be able to crush you if you don't stand firm in your faith. It's like this expression, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for it. Yeah. So, so. That's Ephesians 6, too, with the armor of God. Yeah. So, Isaiah then um, 7, 10. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. You can ask for anything you want. Same thing's going to happen to Hezekiah later in chapter 38. Um, he's ill and he wants a sign from the Lord that God's word is going to be fulfilled. And he says, we'll make the sun go backward on the stairs of Ahaz. Um, so he asked for a, an amazing sign. What does Ahaz ask for? Nothing. Nothing. Why? Because he's a very pious man. He loves the Lord and wants everybody to know it. So verse, what'd you say? Yeah. So verse 12, Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Well, testing the Lord after all, I mean, goodness sakes, what do you know about testing the Lord? It's a sin to test the Lord. But Martin Luther said, Richard, <laughs> Martin Luther said, but when the Lord has commanded to test... It is sin not to test. And so what is he doing? He is making a politically astute move. For all of his pro-Assyrian supporters, I won't test the Lord. I know where my help is coming from. It's coming from Assyria. It's not coming from Jerusalem. It's coming from Assyria. So he puts off this possibility of, of, uh, of uh, getting... Hope from the Lord, because the Lord 
We've heard what he did in the past. Is it any wonder that if Israel thought that what God did in the past was just mythology, that modern biblical scholars had the same attitude? Uh, uh, the point is that God, what God has done in the past is, in fact, a model and a promise of what he will do in the future. But folks, it typically... What God does in the future is greater than what he's done in the past. Amen. Gets greater and greater and greater. We haven't seen it yet. But I haven't seen any miracles in my life. Well, I don't know. <laughs> the way folks drive. You haven't seen any miracles. <laughs> uh, uh, um, I don't know whether I've seen miracles or not. I suspect when we stand before the Lord, we will have a perspective on our lives that we've never had before, and we'll look back and see all of the providences of God that, that brought things together just perfectly so that we achieved all that, that, that God intended us to achieve in our lives. I suspect that. And we will stand in utter awe at a God whose, whose plan and purpose is so comprehensive that <laughs> even... The little things that happen to me have a role in his plan. So Ahaz is thinking as a rationalist. He's thinking as a naturalist. He's not thinking as a man of faith because he's not a man of faith. He's a wicked king. If you want any background on this period, Second uh, Kings chapters, oh, around chapter 12 to 17, would be a good place to read. Um, just the, you might do that this week just to get a feel for what's going on in this whole era of Israel's history. Uh, 2 Kings 12 to 17. 17 is where the northern kingdom falls. And so we, we, can, we can look at that and see what's going on. Verse, so verse 10. The Lord asked, uh, spoke again to Ahaz saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then, then he said, listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will now try the patience of whom? God. No, not God. My, God. My God. Look back at verse 11. Who's God? Your God. This is the house of David. They have a covenant with God. And if they have a covenant with God, that means they are no true kings. They are, they are vice regents under the kingship of God. And the Lord must be their God. So Isaiah offers to or calls Ahaz back to his covenant status. Ask the now... now a sign from the Lord your God. Ahaz's answer, however, is, I will not trust, test the Lord. And Isaiah's response is that you will try the patience of my God. Ahaz has renounced his role in the Davidic covenant. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and she will bear a son and she will call his name Immanuel. Let me, let me stop here with this. There's a lot of problem with this verse. 
people have been struggling with it for centuries, um, going way, 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 way back. And the argument is the word for virgin doesn't mean virgin. It means a marriageable young woman. Well, that's cutting, trying to cut a distinction that you can't cut. Any marriageable young woman in Israel was a virgin. If she was not a virgin, she was not marriageable. Does that make sense? Yes. But in the second place, this word is, is relatively rare. It only occurs, I forget the numbers, something like nine times in the Bible. It's the word alma, A-L-M-A-H. There's another word, betulah, that is the normal word for virgin. When, when we read in uh, Genesis that um, the, uh, uh, the, the, the servant of Abraham went to uh, Haran to get a wife for Isaac. You remember this? He, he ran into uh, uh, Rebekah. And the text says she was virgin and she, did not know a, she had not known a man. Um, that, for a while, I thought, well, that word betulah must not mean virgin. You have to qualify it to clarify that it means that. But I, I learned later that's not the way Hebrew communicates. Let me, t- let me explain how Hebrew communicates. Genesis 28, when Jacob stopped at Bethel, do you remember the story? And he see the, saw the ladder, remember? It said, he said, the text says, he stopped to spend the night. And then it gives a reason for stopping to spend the night. Because the sun had gone down. <laughs> In Hebrew, night doesn't mean the sun's gone down. No, night's the time of darkness, Genesis chapter 1. Amen? So, so what are you doing when you do that? In Hebrew... When you really want to emphasize something, you repeat it in different words. So he stopped to spend the night because the sun had gone down. She was a virgin because she had not known a man. Yeah, David? That is necessary for us, uh-huh. for clarity. Yeah, yeah. But, I, but if I say I stopped to spend the night, it's not because it's noon. You know, maybe I did stop and I was planning to spend the night, but... Because the sun had gone down. I don't need that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's non-necessary information. Since it's not necessary, then I have to explain it. And it's not clarifying what night means. Neither is betulah anything but a virgin. Well, then why do they have two words? I don't know. Why do we have two words for anything in English? Amen, brother? Slim chance and fat chance mean the same thing. The, 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 in the first place, the only places where Alma, the word that's used here in Isaiah 7.14, the only places where that's used outside this verse are either in very ancient passages or in poetic passages. And it occurs to me that maybe this word is a, um, a poetic word. Uh, you've read some Shakespeare, most of you, I suppose, have read some Shakespeare. Yes, is that true? Um, how many of those words do you do you remember showing up in other places? A lot of them, right? Um, sh- forsooth, uh, uh, you know? Do you know uh, that uh, the King James Bible was published just just toward the end of the life of Shakespeare? 
And so the, the, the language of Shakespeare is the language of the King James, and the language of the King James and Shakespeare has molded modern English. And when you want to really be uh, elegant in your style of speech or um, do something unusual, you may use some turn of phrase from, from that era. Even today in the 21st century, 400 years later, are you with me here? Right? And, and for the Ten Commandments, how can you pray the Lord's Prayer and not in King James English? Yes? Um, um, now I can't quote it. Our Father who art in heaven, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy name? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Be done? None of that is modern English, but we... Yes? So... In a passage that's, that's heightened, we're talking about a unique work of the Lord, something that hasn't happened before and won't happen again in the same way, but in a different way, in an exalted way. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Immanuel. You will say, well, where's the miracle here? That's in chapter 8. I'll explain it. So let's go on. Here's the sign. Since he says the virgin, it may well be because one of the functions of the definite article in English and in Hebrew is actually to point to something. It may well be that the virgin was standing there when Isaiah made this statement. Behold, the virgin shall be with uh, shall be shall conceive and be with uh, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Immanuel. Again. God is with us, or God who is with us. In the context, the immediate context, it's the God who is present among us and who's, who, who is going to bring providentially deliverance. So let's read on. Verse 12, I'm sorry, verse 15. He will eat curds and honey. And I've studied this and studied this, trying to figure out what this means. Are, are these curds and honey the rations of, of hard times, or are they... Uh, elegant delicacies. There's evidence for both, and I don't know which way to go on this. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse the the evil and choose the good. How old will the boy be? When he knows enough to choose the, uh, the good and refuse the evil. Yeah, about 12, yes? Bar mitzvah time for a modern Jewish boy, Yes? So this is the time he knows the, well enough to choose the evil, uh, to <laughs> choose the good and refuse the evil. Freudian slip. Uh, wondered if Sigmund's wife wore them, but I don't know. Uh, uh, I, I know, I know. But uh, verse, verse 16, for before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land of the two kings whom you dread will be forsaken. So before 12 years have elapsed, these two kings that you're so afraid of, they're going to be gone. Now, if this is solely and only a prophecy of Jesus, here's what he's saying. All you got to do is wait 732 years <laughs> plus 12. Yes? And then everything's going to be fine. What kind, of, what kind of hope does that hold out to Ahaz? Not much. Verse 17, the Lord will bring on you and on your people 
and on your father's house such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Hard times are coming. Judgment is coming. Maher, Shalal, Hashbaz. Yes? Judgment is coming. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that's in the remotest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that's in the land of Assyria. They will come, they will all come and settle on the steep ravines, on the ledges and the cliffs, on all the thorn bushes and on all the watering places. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor hired from regions beyond the Euphrates, that is, the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and it will also remove the beard. Now in that day, a man may keep alive a heifer and a, and a pair of sheep, and because of the abundance of the milk produced, he will eat curds, for everyone that is left within the land will eat curds and honey. And it will come about in that day that every place where there used to be a thousand vines valued at a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. People will come there with bows and arrows because all the land will, will be briars and thorns. And as for the hills which used to be cultivated with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place for the pasturing of oxen and for sheep to trample. Judgment's coming. Maher, Shalal, Hashbaz. But, Yeshayahu, the Lord saves. How, how can he save? Because Immanuel, God is with us. Well, what does that mean? It means finally, our Yashuv, a remnant, will return. Are you with me? Turn to chapter 8, just a moment. And in verse 18, we'll close with this. Uh, in fact, start at verse 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Isaiah is doing what Ahaz ought to do. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. They do nothing. They simply are. Their names are the message, and they encapsulate the message of the book of Isaiah. So uh, chapter 7 has a marvelous beginning. It's not all we had hoped for. How does the New Testament get Jesus out of this? I hope to answer that question in the next two weeks. Uh, and, they, and the New Testament's right. Okay. I know you're thankful that I made that admission. <laughs> Mike. Okay. Molly and David's son-in-law. Yeah. Um, he had had a brain tumor. I they thought it was taken care of. They had seen some other spots. But he wasn't telling his symptoms. He and all of that family were up in New York and starting to show symptoms again. Oh, dear. And Molly is here with all the children, all the grandchildren. So they're on their way back from New York. Okay. Because he's showing symptoms again. Oh, dear. Brain tumor. All right. Yeah, let's pray then. Thank you for coming today. Thank you to our visitors for coming. Certainly appreciate always having uh, our visitors with us. Let's pray. And the donuts. And take some donuts home. So let's pray. Father, we do pray for Molly and David and their son and his family, the rest of the family. We, we plead with you for his life. Would, would you not simply... Dim diminish the symptoms would you take it away would you heal him perhaps even as we're praying 
What a great joy that would be to all of us to hear that you have done this. Father, though, through it all, increase their faith, strengthen them to be able to trust you, and let us be as Isaiah was in his day, waiting eagerly for the Lord. Um, Father, we know that you are the God of life, but you are not simply the God of earthly life. You are the God of all life. And as dreadful as sin, as death is, um, beyond it for your children is life like we've never known. So teach us not to value this life except as an opportunity to serve you and to value even death if you call it to us that, that your name might be glorified by the fact that we have held fast to you in such times. So, Father, we uh, take warning from the, the book of Isaiah that even in times in which it looks like sin prevails, it looks like evil is in charge, it looks like everything is, is um, collapsing around us, yet we may hold fast to you. You are a stable and sure refuge in such times. Teach us how to do that, Father. I know that that probably means going into trouble ourselves. But, Father, we're, as Job said, we're born for trouble like the sparks fly upwards. So, Father, begin, with, begin easily with us and then, and then build us up. But build us up, indeed, in that our most holy faith. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.